Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. You've got to want to build houses, not paint walls. Painting walls is fine and, and it's totally good. But if you do not like to build houses, actually don't make that transition because you're literally going to go like, oh my God, there is no wall here. And you're going to have to build it from scratch. Everything you need to be able to do it yourself. Welcome back to the Engineering Leadership Podcast. ELC Annual 2023 is just around the corner. So we're launching a special series featuring past sessions that capture some of the themes and topics that you'll see during the conference. Why, you ask? Because you're probably wondering, what can I expect from the conference? Well, the answer is incredible speakers and content. And this episode is just a preview of what you might see this year. Speaking sessions will tackle some of the most critical challenges facing engineering leaders today. We're talking leadership, technology, well, specifically technology on how generative AI is impacting software development and engineering leadership. But today's theme is career development. And our career track will expose you to different opportunities, different company types, and introduce you to different engineering cultures and processes to help you navigate and build the career you want. And specifically, the speaking sessions we're featuring are going to tackle everything from how to assess startups, how to expand your impact beyond engineering, the differences between B2B and B2C businesses, and how to navigate critical relationships like products, go-to-market teams, customers, and more. If you haven't gotten your ticket yet, I'm telling you right now, you're missing out and you need to be there. You can grab your ticket and check out all of our speakers and topics at sfelc.com forward slash annual 2023. This episode features a session from ELC Annual 2022 with Vinod Marer, SVP of Engineering at Databricks, and Ali Irturk, VP of Engineering at Commerce Hub, sharing strategies for transitioning from large companies to smaller companies. And in this conversation, you'll hear some of the different strategies for finding the next opportunity, tips to make your transition smooth, frameworks for being a successful leader at a smaller organization, skills and attributes you need to be successful in these contexts, and how to integrate teams that consist of original startup members and hires from larger companies. Let me introduce you to our speakers. Vinod Marr is the SVP of Engineering at Databricks. He was previously at Rubrik where he served as SVP of Engineering. And prior to that, Vinod spent nearly 15 years in leadership roles across some of Google's most critical business units, including search, ads, and payments, as well as tapping into his passion for developer platforms to create and lead the actions on Google platform. Ali Irturk is currently VP of Engineering at Commerce Hub. Previously, he was the VP of Engineering at Workboard, which is a strategy and results enterprise SaaS platform, helping large organizations align quickly for results, and was the VP of Engineering at Alice Technologies, working on revolutionizing the construction industry with an artificial intelligence-powered enterprise SaaS product. Again, if you are interested in topics just like this and beyond, you can get your ticket to join your peers, check out all of our other speakers, and explore additional topics at sfelc.com forward slash annual 2023. Enjoy this special episode with Vinod Marer and Ali Irturk. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for the introduction. Shall we start? Absolutely. Let's okay. go for it. 
I know you joined Google in 2004, and this is only six years after Google was founded. Um, Google was smaller by then, and you were there for around 15 years. And from IC to management, all the way to VP level, and you hold many different roles. And the company went from a couple thousand to hundreds of thousands. I like to hear a little about that rocket ship experience, but then I know that you moved to a smaller startup compared to Google, of course, companies like Rubrik and Databricks. I like to better understand the motivation behind that change um, and tell us more about that. So first of all, thanks for having me here and uh, thanks for working with me to get me to this point. Yeah, so I I'll try to keep this one fairly short, at least in the first part, because there's a lot that you can wax eloquent about 15 years at Google. But for me, probably the biggest thing that led me to Google stayed through almost till the very end, which was this, it was a very diverse space. Even back in 2004, as you could see the company, you could see the conversations. And, you know, even an interview tells you a little bit about how the person is thinking. And by then, um, you know, I'd already had three, four year stints. So I knew one thing about me is that new problem spaces and new skills uh, would be something that was very important to kind of like keep me engaged. And uh, Google provided that in leaps and bounds. Um, it was very difficult to get adjusted because as much as I hadn't worked in uh, a company like Google before, your notions of how work exists, what a manager does, how anything else works, everything was out of the window. I think it was only probably two years before then that there was this very famous incident where Larry came and told all the managers, you're fired, not like you have to go and leave the company, but you're no longer managers because he hated the idea of managers, right? Uh, after recruiting and a bunch of people had worked out to get in the managers. So it really defied everything. And you suddenly woke up realizing there was nobody telling you what to do. The idea that you'd go and ask somebody, can I do this was very alien. So you had to build a lot of muscles. And uh, I think that never stopped. You know, I joined a particular team pretty much as an accident when I was just hanging out in uh, Google New York, which is where I started my career. And I quickly discovered there's an opportunity to build a product. I crafted an idea for it. And next thing I know, they wanted to ship it. And I was like, no, it's just a prototype. Please don't ship it. So I built, you know, this is like month three. I landed up building a little bit of a business case. Said this is what the team should look like, et cetera. But meanwhile, I also decided I'd do something else, which is actually work in Google search. And in most companies, I think that would have been a very terrible conversation to have. But it was perfectly fine. It's like, great, um, we'll put together a team and go off and do your merry thing and go write code. Um, so I think things like that kept happening again and again and again and again. Pretty much, I'd say, maybe a year or two till I left. To answer the question on why, that stopped happening. It became much more of a, you know, where does the headcount sit? Who is the VP? Should I do this because it's not part of this group or that group? And, you know, some of it is natural, by the way. You become more risk averse at that size. But for me personally, it wasn't where I was getting bored, but I wasn't certainly getting challenged. I wasn't learning anything new. And the way I like to put it is, you do wake up very often in the morning wondering whether your causation or correlation, and at least the egoistical in all of us, wants to provide at least some causation. Um, and I still don't know whether that is true or not, but I said, let me go and find out. This is, this is about continuing to learn, having growth mindset, right? Um, you were not bored, but you were not challenged enough. And that's actually what triggered the search for another opportunity. And when you come to that point in your career, in, in wherever you are in your career, 
How do you go about searching for that next opportunity? Where do you even start or does it even matter? I think it's going to be different for different folks. But, you know, a couple of pieces of advice, and this again came from a lot of mentors in my own life, is it's best not to go away from something, but go to something. And that requires a little more thought and work at your end and certainly patience. So, and by the way, it's not like this is this masterful trait I've had all my life. I've made mistakes where I've both gone away from things as well as rushed timelines. These things take time. You just need to give it the time it's going to take because let's say you don't know where you want to go. You might land up in an atmosphere which is worse than where you are, an environment worse than you are, and not like what you're doing more than what you're doing today. And But to then know what that looks like, you have to actually spend some time. And even that is very hard. Um, I mean, I'm sure most of you all know this. You know, folks who've just come straight out of school, if you ask them, what do you want to do? They're going to be like, I want to write code. Well, what do you want to do two years later? They're going to look at you strange. Some of them, of course, know they want to be the CEO of their own company, etc., which I find admirable. Uh, but by and large, people don't know. And it takes time to understand what you want to do next. And even after N years of working, that changes. So you need to spend some time introspecting. But for me, the way I discover it is a lot of conversations. So I, I don't know, I must have talked to how many co-founders, how many managers, how many folks at various companies just trying to understand what they were looking for, what I could be doing. And many of these would be like, you know, lead nowhere and that's okay because I'd at least learn about things that were happening outside. And in that process, I developed overloaded word, my own rubric of what I wanted to achieve. So you reflect a lot. You think about these things a lot. Um, you have patience. I, I don't have patience. I'm well, saying do have patience. Do have patience throughout this process. And then you also said something about talking to many people. So you actually get the chance to validate your ideas, get to learn about the opportunities out there and take your time to take your time to figure out uh, what you want to do next. Is it correct to say not taking an action, even at the end of the day, it might not work out, is actually worse than taking that action? I, you know, I think it depends on those conversations. At the end of it, if you conclude consciously, you're not going to take an action, it's okay, right? But not having those conversations and just staying in, I'll say, stagnation mode, I think that's super dangerous. Uh, because, you you know, you're fundamentally accepting that you don't want to change. But here's the sad truth. Even if you don't want to change, things around you are going to change. There's going to be a reorg. The company's not going to do well. It's going to add a new product. Somebody else is going to come in. So you're going to be forced to evaluate. So I think it's much better to understand whether the journey that you're going to be dragged into is something you want to do, or you drag yourself into a journey that you wanted. Sure. I can't agree more. Stagnation is, you know, very dangerous. Doesn't mean that you shouldn't do your due diligence but you just can't be stuck in a place. You're not a tree, you can always move, right? At the end of the day. Exactly. So um, you mentioned growth is very important. And if the growth slows down, it's time to look for another opportunity. You talked about putting a lot of thought in it, having some patience throughout the process, talking to a lot of people to find your next opportunity. Assume you found one, and now you move to this smaller company now. Mm -hmm. And in your case, maybe you can walk us through Databricks experience. Sure. How do you go about the 30 days? What were, what were the things that were different from your previous experience? Sure. So actually, before I get into that one, the one thing I'll say is, as you make your choice, I think this is particularly true if you're making the transition from big to small. I think you need to have a very honest conversation with whoever you're going to work with, the founders, the leadership, etc., on what they want you to do, what value did they see you bringing into the company rather than assuming I am whatever I am and there's something magical about me. 
and I'm going to go in there because, um, so like one thing which I remember you and I were discussing is inside a big company, it's actually much easier to wear multiple hats. What I mean by that is a practical example is you could be leading engineering, but you'd also be doing product. You could be doing design um, because you have so much of a support system around you to fill in the gaps. Contradiction is that you go into a super small company, let's say you found something, you're forced to do that. You know, everybody's being a salesperson, being the documentation person, et cetera. But somewhere in that leadership spectrum and the growth spectrum, focus lines are being very important. So I'll give you an example as it relates to where I am. I love talking to customers. I love shaping products, even if I'm not good at it. You know, it's a question of what I like to do. But the problem is every minute I spend there is time spent away from something that the company needs, which could be hiring process is not okay. Uh, we don't have our build systems are not okay. Uh, testing infrastructure needs to change. We keep having outages, so you need to go and talk to customers. So all of this sound like painful stuff, but maybe that's what that company wants of you. And having that honest conversation is super important because if you go there assuming the title translates into the same type of activities, you might find very quickly it's not. In fact, at the smaller companies, I'd say there's a pretty good dividing line between the CTO responsibility versus the VP of ENGS responsibility. One is very innovation product focused. One is very operational. And I've seen a lot of people struggle with this realization too late in the game because they thought, I like building products, early products, I'm going there. Guess not, you're going to be, you're going to be making sure the trains run on time. So having that conversation, I think is important. So sorry for that bit of a segue. But now let's say you land there. I'd say the biggest thing I'll say is start off with having very low expectations of yourself. Because what we forget is that what makes us succeed, uh, which is why that company is like, hey, maybe you should come and join us. You're, you might be the smartest person. I'm not. You might have lots of experience, which, okay, let's say I do. But what allowed me to succeed is a context. And context takes a lot of time to build, right? So you go in there assuming that, you know, you know I'd be sitting in my random cube at Google going like, oh, no, you need to ship two weeks earlier. And I knew what needed to happen to make that happen. And I, I didn't need to teach anyone. You go to this company, first of all, you have no idea what they're doing. Um, so you'll have to learn the business. You have to learn the people. You have to learn the technology. If you don't be patient with yourself and try to score these big victories very quickly, you land up actually really hurting the company. And that's probably the other big thing I'll tell. Every failure of yours, it's not just a failure for you. It's a failure for that company because they can't afford that. So the constraints are very different. So I'll say take a very low, you know, pace, but calibrate that with the people who brought you in and say, hey, this is what I'm going to do. And very often, both the times, in fact, the feedback that came to me was, that's way too fast. Just stop. Actually do even less. And now this is like completely messing up my brain because I'm like, I'm the best thing since sliced bread. I can do lots of things. And you brought me here to change your company, at least mentally, these things are going on. And you're telling me to go even slower. And I measure myself by a certain expectation I set. So it took me a long time to learn to live with that lower expectation, right? The second thing is in that context gathering, I mean, anyone here who's worked for really small, big companies and made the move to small companies? How many people? Did you find a lot of great documentation that you could read up on? Was the code base phenomenal with comments? No. So how do you do it? You have to form people bonds. You have to form friends. You have to build learn who does what, who's good as what. By the way, that particular thing of who, who's great at something 
versus who is amazing at something else is one of those things which no one talks about, but that's what enables you to succeed. Because you know by experience that, for instance, yeah, you don't give Vinod that thing which requires a lot of structure and discipline. Um, and maybe you don't give Ali something that requires slow pace. You need to know your personalities and that is again context, right? So you need to learn who these folks are, what they've, how long have they been there, etc. So gain that context is the first part and start with very tactical wins. So set yourself some very tactical goals. Um, so I'll tell you my, you know, experience at Rubrik, I'd gone there, there used to be these stand-up meetings and be like, what are these stand-up meetings? Well, it turns out they were trying to release something. So I thought, all right, I'm going to go to the stand-up meeting. I thought it's 10 minutes. No, it was like 40 people. It's going on for 45 minutes. I realized they meant when they saw stand-up, in my mind, it was ship room and very different activities. So I observed for three whole weeks and then I went to the co-founder and said, I think this we should tweak. And he's like, yeah, that's right. That makes sense. So we made one tweak and next week and next week. So that constant calibration with people who've been there and it could be a co-founder, it might be one of the senior engineers, but most importantly, people who've been there to know the DNA of that company, that is super important. And then you repeat and rinse, you just repeat and rinse and repeat and rinse. So, Thank you. Since this is a smaller company, um, like you said, the impact that you have tend to be a lot bigger and the mistakes are amplified. And like you said, again, context matters because, you know, just taking things out of context and trying to apply them might not really make things any better than, than then you found them. I think what really um, resonated with me the most is this contest gathering exercise. Even big companies have these issues of documentation and, and making the information available for successful onboarding. It's just only more amplified in a small company. And, and I think what you called out was this relationship building. It's critical as you learn new document and teach others, but also kind of giving yourself a break. That's the patient part comes yep. in so that, um, so that you can actually understand things better before you take ashes to them. Um, and also we talked about these tactical smaller wins that you want to have as you gather more context and observe and rinse and repeat. So how long does this process take in general? It's, I'm sure it's context to contest changes. When do you feel you're like ramped up? I still don't feel ramped up at data breaks. I really don't. I mean, like suddenly we'll have some new thing come up and I'm like, man, who knew the API worked this way, right? Because I'm so far away from the code base, first of all. So finding who can actually educate me on that is the first exercise. And then I have to go to that person and I'd be like, yeah, I know this, but two years before it was somebody else who was working on this and you need to go and talk to so-and-so, right? Um, so it could be that or the way certain customers they have certain expectations because they've been around for a long time. So it still doesn't stop for me. And um, I think it, in my mind, typically for any complex product and company, it takes at least two to three years. Um, and I think through that process, just be patient and make sure you're constantly calibrating. It makes a lot of sense. One of the things that I always realize, um, and it's kind of a challenge for people who are moving from a large company to a smaller startup, they realize how much of a support network they had around them. And it could be just examples would be onboarding that was already available. It could be HR, yep. it could be, you know, budgeting. When you join to a smaller company, you start to realize many of these things don't exist anymore. What was your experience related to that? But also, how did you end up you know, tackling that? Because you might just end up needing to go outside of your responsibility, role, say as a VP of engineering, uh, and because that's what the job requires for you to get, to get it done. Well, that's a great question. Um, 
So actually, let me maybe pop on to the audience. So I noticed a couple of you all had hands up saying you all made the transition. Was anyone in utter sheer horror the first day that your land made the transition? Just curious, what, what, why were you horrified? Just the lack of structure um, and processes and, you know, everyone doing everything kind of like, yeah, that, that was what shocked me. That's a, that's a great description because you, you suddenly realize, you know, my couch isn't there. And it's a metaphorical thing. Everyone's running around doing everything. There's a candidate whom four different managers are pitching their stuff and the candidates are having a ball. The managers don't even know. I mean, just the list goes on and on, right? And there's this immediate thing in your brain where you go like, I'm going to bring order. I'm going to quickly have a list of everything that made me succeed and I'm going to transplant it here, right? You'll get that thought, just stop. Just literally just halt yourself. Two things. A lot of it is irrelevant, right? Rituals are, many of the things you were used to were actually just rituals. They're more cultural than helping you be effective. Secondly, you are picking a particular problem which you see as very important at that point in time. Meanwhile, if you actually go and talk around, people are going to be like, are you crazy? You're talking about a small little wound on your hand. Did you notice my leg is gushing blood here? Can you come and help me fix that? Picking what problem you want to work on, again, same thing, you need to keep going back to folks. And this might sound bizarre to you going like, hey, you're there to lead the company. You, you can't lead unless you have the context. So first of all, the other part I forgot to mention is definitely get very, very humble. Humble that you don't know anything. I won't do uh, bad words here, but you don't know anything to be able to even pick the right problem to work on. So calibrate that. And then the second thing is, let's say I'll give you an example. It's like, oh, hiring is going slow. Even though we have a lot of candidates, you'll immediately jump back to whatever structure worked for you at your company. And you go like, I'm going to build that here. Stop. Actually, just write it down and see if people come back and say, okay, because you'll find very often that the way you're picking that solution is based on a pattern match. It doesn't work in the new place because you forget that that worked because you use the word support network. You had this large number of recruiting people. You had recruiting coordinators. You had sourcers. Here, it's a one-man show. So then you go like, all right, if I want this end effect and this is the way the process works, what are the things that I have to compensate? Going back to VP offense, now I'm now going to start harvesting my LinkedIn network and going out and hitting up every single person. So you're suddenly playing sourcer. I was so over-caffeinated at times that I didn't sleep all night because it was like five meetings at Starbucks back to back because that's the only way you're going to get in candidates to talk to you. Um, so you just first calibrate on the right problem, secondly calibrate on the right approach, and then be prepared. Somebody actually gave me a very nice line recently said, you have to be prepared that what this company needs of you is to work maybe two, three, four levels beneath your level. But with the potential that you can suddenly go three, four levels above where you are hired in a very short period of time. That's what small companies want. And that's hard, right? It's particularly hard if you have myths and misconceptions of what your role looks like. So that, that's the way I look at that aspect. It does resonate with me a lot as well. When I made my transition from a larger company to a very small company, um, I realized almost everything that you mentioned, really not having a um, recruitment team. You are the recruiter. You're the one who purchases a greenhouse and sets that up. Um, I remember going to SOC 2 myself. I need to get SOC 2 certification and you look around, who's going to do it? If the room is quiet, all you got to do is just look at the mirror and it's going to be you. So you need to worry about, you know, how are we going to, you know, lock the doors? 
has been in the past. We can't just say, oh, don't. Stuff like that, which is, I think, brings up another topic in my mind is some of these things are, um, instead of skills, the, the kind of like knowing the programming language, they're more like certain attributes of a person. Uh, some, some people are um, more inclined or they have maybe happen to have that attribute than others. Some don't. Um, when it, actually, when you move into a small company like that, what attributes or personal attributes do you think that matters the most? I mean, you mentioned some of them already. You know, being able to be nimble, iterates, ownership. Uh, are there others that you will emphasize so that people can actually go back and think about these attributes and say, I need to invest in that attribute so I'm not shocked? Uh, well, one comes to mind, and this is uh, credit to one of the Databricks co-founders, Arslan, and I'd never heard it put quite this way. It's like, you've got to want to build houses, not paint walls. If painting walls is fine and, and it's totally good, but if you do not like to build houses, actually don't make that transition because you're going to be building a lot of house. You're not just tweaking around things. You're literally going to go like, oh my God, there is no wall here and you're going to have to build it from scratch. And that requires, again, is it the right place to build the wall? Who else can help me build the wall? Uh, nobody. How do I go and get some help? Everything you need to be able to do yourself. Uh, I'd say that might be the builder versus the painter metaphor comes to mind. I think when, when we talked to each other, the last time you also mentioned not being uh, scared of failures, I think oh, it's a huge yeah. one. And um, just kind of allowing yourself to be slammed and fail and learn. Because I think most of these, one of the most significant changes that I feel like I realized after I talked to you was that um, you learn by failing. And sometimes it's more important to fail fast. I know it's been overused, but to be successful than no, just actually, get stuck. No, thanks for reminding me about that one. Because the other, if anything, I think bigger companies really make you fearful of a failure because not in any bad way, but things happen when you fail. Like, oh, suddenly there's going to be an org change or if I don't do this, I'm not going to get headcount or this product won't ship. You know, there's so much of failure constantly happening in a smaller company. If you're not comfortable with that, you have to, it'll suddenly hit you hard. And part of it is also ego, right? Who likes to fail? You don't. So that fear always stands in your way. Um, and the second part of the ego is, Again, you fail and then you're going to go and ask. In my case, you know, sometimes I'm off going and talking to somebody who's just like two years out of school going like, what do you think I could do better here? Um, so being open to that feedback is super important. Patrick here with some exciting news. We now have 10 local communities of engineering leaders hosting in-person meetups all over the world. Yes, you heard that right. There are 10 local communities in cities all over the world. These groups are led by engineering leaders just like you who wanted to create a place to connect, to share insights, and tackle critical challenges in the job. To get involved, go to elc.community. Sign up if you haven't already. If you have signed up, make sure you update your location and we'll get you plugged in. We're launching local events all the time. You can find them and get involved again at elc.community. And uh, during one of our conversations as well, um, I remember you mentioned um, there is really no textbook for this. There's a lot of books that I can read to learn more about how I think Google does SRE or like how do you get hired in, um, in say Google or other companies. Just really for a startup, you're just on your own. In that environment, I think networking or the people you know who went through that matters a lot. Do you have mentors, coaches, advisors within the companies, outside the company that helped during this transition and, and how did they do that? I mean, there have always been some formal mentors, which is how I landed up achieving anything that I did in my life. Yeah, I'm just not ever shy to go out and ask for advice. And it's um, and it, the other thing I'll tell you is it's a bit tricky because what happens is, and this is even in a big company, 
senior roles are some one of my long time managers and closest friends made this comment way back and I couldn't quite grok it. But I can assure you, if you just think about it, maybe three years down the line, it'll ring true. As you grow senior, the loan roles start getting lonelier and lonelier. Um, you don't have the comfort of as many people that you can go to or go to without some impact of that conversation happening. So, which is why I think depending on what you're trying to do, having a set of folks who that you can lean on who are not going to be shy about telling you exactly what you need to hear is super important. But very often, for some other things, they won't have the context. So in my case, you know, we have an interesting mix of folks who've been there at Databricks very long. I think at this point, six co-founders are still there, a lot of early employees, and they span all kinds of levels. So I'll just go to any one of them and just like, like, hey, I'm trying to do this. What do you think? Do you think it's even the right thing? This ranges from everything from how we want to structure something to whether to invest in a particular area, things which you would have never even talked to other folks at the bigger company because you can see all the pattern matches around you and exactly how to do it. It makes the experimentation a lot more efficient because now you actually get to learn from others' experiences. Yeah, absolutely. And they they have things that you don't have to help you there. So a lot of insights. There's no way to do this quickly. Being patient, uh, small wins, understand the company culture. If you were to go back and, and think about either one of your transitions, were there other things that you would be doing differently this time? I'd say, you know, all of the things that I mentioned, right? I mean, it's like I said, I'm a terrible person to learn from perfection. From a perfection perspective, everything has been uh, make this mistake, make this mistake. So I'll say I'd have been way more patient with myself and those around me. Second, I would definitely lean on even more and cultivate some relationships. And the other part there, by the way, is in bigger companies, the cross-functional uh, relationships aren't as important because you have systems that take care of it. It becomes this largely impersonal space. Here, that doesn't work. So for instance, um, and this, I can assure you, if I tell you this, anyone in a smaller company will immediately go like, yep, that happens. You'll suddenly wake up, realize that some vital piece of equipment, software, license, take your pick, is suddenly not there. It was fine yesterday evening, you come in today, it's expired, or the license is gone. And you'd be like, who did this? And be like, I don't know. There's somebody who was here, mysterious person, six months back, and it was on their personal credit card. They're no longer even here. So in both of these companies, the first thing I did is sat down with the purple in the purchasing department and said, okay, I need your help to make sure I can now start collecting. I need to just inventory. And if you ask any single person, including the founders, they'd be like, I don't know what's the list of SaaS software that we use. So, you know, much like the U.S. government or any crime enforcement will tell you, what do you do? You follow the money. So now we sat in forensic accounting around credit, uh, you know, expense reports. Again, back to VP of Eng, building product. No, I mean, this stuff is important, right? Because you can load your DNS name. You can land up realizing your firewall subscription is, or virus scanning subscription or, you know, all, all the esoteric ones on the server side of failing. That's super important for the company. And yeah, it would be lovely to have this person whose job it is. Person isn't there. You don't even know what this person looked like because I can assure you, if I ask you who does this in a big company, you, many people wouldn't know. I didn't know. Or, okay, this is the budget. And I have engineers screaming at me about how bad the build system is. Do I spring for those two more engineers to help a particular team or do I go and buy more machines or, you know, get a little more AWS spent to make sure that the builds go faster. I never had to make the trade-off at Google. It was just like, 
generally, if engineers complained at me, I took it, forwarded it on to somebody I knew, and suddenly they'd stop complaining. And it's not like I didn't care, but it, it just took care of itself. Now it doesn't. And suddenly you realize that's super important. So, Vinod, I have a lot more questions, but it's not about me. So um, we have around 14 minutes left. I really want to do a Q&A, but before we do a Q&A, I want to ask a question to the audience. And, and if there's anyone who's interested in responding to that, I will appreciate your answer. And the question is very similar to what I asked Vinod. For the people who had experience in terms of transitioning from a bigger company to a smaller startup, what mind shift changes, what leadership style changes do they need to adapt for a successful transition? You'd like to hear that from me. I think the analogy I think about often is um, go to the gym, right? So when you go to the gym, there are several things you could do. You could work on cable machines, you could work on uh, free weights. When I worked at large companies, the, the, it's kind of like working on cable machines, right? But you only have one degree of motion. You can only do one thing, up and down, up and down, up and down, right? And in those cable machines, you tend to lift heavier weights because you have a lot of support structure around you, right? And you, and you just go doing one thing. And at any, any given time, if you feel like you've taken on too much, you just let go. And the cable machine goes back to where it started off, right? Startups is more like lifting dumbbells, right? But you need a lot more support structure to be lifting those dumbbells. And, and you tend, tend to end up uh, exercising some support muscles and exercising muscles that you never exercised before, as you mentioned. Yeah? But as a result, you can't lift as heavy as, as a cable machine. And, and also with dumbbells, if you lift too heavy in a wrong way, you end up hurting yourself pretty bad. Right? So there's a lot more risk. Uh, so that's the analogy I like to think about. Risk and reward. Phenomenal. Very good. Yeah, Thank you for great, sharing. Great analogy. I'm going to remember that one. Thanks. Any others? Moving from a larger company to a smaller company, right? Um, generally, larger companies being more top-down, smaller companies being more bottom-up. Um, how did you switch that mindset? So, and I think this is maybe specific to Google. For me, it was the other way around. A lot more Brownian motion, a lot more random things happening at Google. Smaller companies, whether or not the intrinsic explicit style is stated top-down or not, that clarity of what we want to do at any given time is actually a lot more in the smaller companies and even more so in the smaller enterprise companies because it's not about sitting in a room and imagining things. You have to actually go and talk to customers and then it's not just giving them what they want. You have to understand what is it that they're trying to do. So that actually results if you make this transition to, into any well-run enterprise company, you will see a rigor into that thinking process, which I think is phenomenal experience, even if you want to go back and build a consumer. But certainly, I think smaller companies, even if it doesn't appear like somebody is riding that entire team hard, and you don't have to, there is a much more intentful, deliberate motion of what you do. At least for me, both the transitions, that was what I discovered. I agree with that. What I will add um, is just, like you said, it's more bottom-up. Now you're making a lot more decisions. You really can't wait others to tell you what to do. Possibly one of the most important attributes for success there is having a lot of courage and perseverance to stick to it. The best way to get that, improve that attribute, is actually taking more risks. So whatever works for you. You can just push yourself to take more risks or you can just go, um, you know, race cars. Whatever gets that muscle going more and more as you get more and more comfortable, take your risks and kind of going through it and dopamine hits and you're like, okay, I can do this and you like make more decisions. So I think 
perseverance and, and courage will need to be really exercised quite a bit. Hello. Um, thank you for your uh, sharing the wisdom here. I had a question about kind of the opposite, not the opposite, but like in terms of your CEO or the founders, right? So I've seen places where you move from a larger company, but CEO and or your managers have still a mentality of a small company, right? Like um, one of the examples I would say is they celebrated uh, the features more than the operational wins. In fact, they, many of them didn't even celebrate operational wins. So how do you kind of, so I feel like there is a coaching aspect to even coaching upwards of what's important. At the same time, not sounding like you're bringing some large company things over to here. I was wondering if there's any experiences or pointers. So that's a great question. I think when, when companies, especially startups, bring people like Ravinath here, he definitely can bring a lot of process. Um, and, and kind of bridge the gap in between what you were talking about, the health, because he has done it multiple times, he has done it in big companies. But there's also something to say about really understanding the context, like Vinod was mentioning, because sometimes, especially really early stage startup, you really, the features matter the most because, you know, you're going from like a year, year and a half run rate to another one. Um, I mean, it's important to have a vision. It's important to have a mission. It's important to have a roadmap. There's no excuse for that. Um, but features bring the customers, ARR matters for the next fundraise. So you really need to understand the context. And that's a hard balance. Hard balance, I'm sure, for you. Definitely easier for him compared to others because he has seen both sides. But I think just striking the balance there will be the critical path. Yeah, so actually, let me uh, divide the, my response in two parts. So, and I forgot to mention this. Uh, one of the things everyone, I'm sure, uh, if I use the word tech debt, Everyone will go like, yeah, take that, right? And it bugs us. It gets under our skin. My own internalization of that as I've come to the smaller companies is if you don't see tech debt in a smaller company, run. Because tech debt, it's not because people generally at a macro level are bad or lazy. Particularly the smaller companies, they've actually embraced a key thing which many folks don't have, which is market opportunity. And in that timing is everything. So if you use that context, you'll realize whether it's tech debt, whether it's a lack of operational rigor, whether it's something else, there was a very explicit choice that some really smart people made. And not because they didn't know better or in other cases, even that they didn't know, it was to respect that opportunity. Respecting the opportunity is what allows fools like myself to show up at a later stage and join that company, right? So I have to really, really respect that. And I have to understand why it happened. So again, I, I dig into why this happened and where... And by the way, all of this, it's not meant to say you're just going there to be employee number 20 or 30 or 50 or 100 and just coast. Of course, they're bringing you in because of something that they see in you that you can help. But now take this uh, part to us. Let's take celebrating operational this time. It might be that they are totally get it. In fact, if you take data breaks, by the way, uh, I tell you that uh, Ali is a brilliant engineering leader, far better than I am going to be. I'm not kidding. But that there's a deliberate choice made because they couldn't even afford engineers in the back in the day. They couldn't afford enough engineers and enough senior engineers. So they did what they could. But he recognized that constantly and his pushes, let's make sure teams have got the right chemistry, the right mix of levels. In fact, I would say the prescription that we Databricks brought to how teams should be composed is far more deliberate than Google ever was. As to the celebrating, uh, you know, operational rigor, it's not just helping. In this case, I didn't have to. I didn't have to do that. It's not just the founders. Though. You have to reach the average engineer because the founders or the leaders in the company, they are making the investment decisions. 
But the people do on the ground who are actually writing the code, they're making the trade-off between do I just ship the feature, do I have a unit test, do I have a regression test, do I have a system test? So making sure you as a leader are going and celebrating that out of take a lot of time to have those conversations and building it into your you know, career evolution ladder, those are the things that you can. And again, you can't suddenly go like feature, feature, boom, six month freeze. Because my, by the way, favorite pet peeve is when companies declare freezes. Because in my mind, that's how both companies and software dies. So spend a lot of time in understanding why something might not exist and make sure you know whether it is a lack of awareness or a lack of resources or a timing issue. I thank you for an excellent talk today. My question is, as your startup is going through a growth phase, you hire a lot of people. Usually these people are from more experienced companies and everything else. So in the end, you have like half of the people who have been in the company for a long time and were part of the early journey and half of the people who are coming from much mature companies. And you kind of now need to strike a balance on what type of change you bring to the table. The new people want kind of a little bit more mature processes to be implemented while the older people see that uh, like a difficult choice or maybe a threat. So how do you balance some of those when it is in a high growth phase like Databricks might be? So I am very explicit with senior leaders, uh, uh, whether it's ICs or managers coming from big companies. I actually do a little bit of a one-off orientation for the managers. And I tell them exactly what I've shared here, which is you're not here to bring big process. You're not here to suddenly, oh, there's no code readability. Well, you were used to code readability. You're going to impose it. Why does it exist? Why, uh, how could it actually happen? Take Google's example, massive profit margins. Plenty of time in the world to do most things. Could afford that. Try to it in a smaller company. I mean, you'll be amazing code quality and no customers, right? So that's one thing. So the folks coming in need to understand why they're coming in, not to superimpose every one of what they are used to or want to do. And again, pick a few things. Make sure everyone agrees that that is the right set of problems to grow at. So you want to pick the right problems, the right cadence. And even that, the other part is, the smaller company, you have to be way more iterative. Things which are going to be like six months, one year, two years, three years, doesn't work. Right? Everyone's hair is on fire, mine not, but... You have to respond right now. You have to deliver value constantly. For the folks who've been there, by the way, I, as far as I'm concerned, the, you know, it's, it's almost where I have this notion of elder, not by level, but by tenure. And I lean a, on a lot of them when the proverbial thing hits the fan. I go to them first. Because same thing, if there's a problem, by the way, you don't want to come to me at Databricks. You'll want to go to the right engineer, the right director, the right VP, because I'll anyway land up going and pulling that time. So, so that, I'm very clear on who, it's not a win versus loss thing, but who needs to drive the change and who can help, of course, in that change. I definitely agree. Um, in terms of finding the balance, one tool to, you know, what we not mentioned to actually put together would be putting together some kind of an engineering manifesto. And when you define that, you can actually, depending on which stage you're in, you can call out the relevant parts from these different parties. Early start, stage startup people wants to move fast. Right? They want to build features really quickly, get quick feedback. There's a lot of things to learn from there. But they might not, to an extent, don't care a certain portion, uh, portion of software development lifecycle. Later stage engineers that might have different benefits to bring in. Writing a manifesto like that will actually ask you these hard questions to answer where you are in your journey as a company and which parts needs to be picked and kind of make it very clear. So it's not up for interpretation. 
Hello, it's me, <laughs> Jinping from Wish. Uh, actually, my question is kind of similar to, to this uh, lady, um, but my question is uh, more like, how do you influence other people making their mindset change transition from large to small uh, companies? One part is, how, how do you do it for your organization? It's a large one. And another part is, how do you influence other organizations? Some example I am experiencing now, like um, other engineering leader or legal team fin finance leaders, they lack of the uh, mindset of trade-off, right? Make trade-off decision. They, for example, security, they ask, oh, you need to have perfect uh, security. And uh, the legal team said, you need to have perfect uh, compliance, which without considering the cost, how do we influence those people change? Yeah, I mean, for, like I said, to hear what we'll end up doing is, at least for all the senior leaders, we make sure there's a mentor who has been around a long time. And that mentor, I also check in to see if, you know, the person is doing well and helping make the trade-off. Because I'll take the example that you brought up about security and legal and stuff, right? The folks in security are right, the folks in legal are right. But remember, every company, the decision on what you do and how you make the trade-off is a product decision. It is not a security and legal decision. You can't have the same trade-off at uh, Meta, uh, Amazon, or a Google as a small company because part of it is just your exposure numbers, right? So you can't expect that translation to happen. So, and I'd say you have to take that. And that's why me coming in brand new, I might not even be able to make the decision. So I immediately lean on the person I report to, which is Ali, the CEO, or one of the product leads, and go like, hey, this is the trade-off. What do you think? And they'd be like, typically, I've always found that they would be even more aggressive than where my brain would lead me. And my brain is already aggressive. The other part of it is, it's not just security. Everything you trade off, in a smaller company, you know, there's this label of being customer obsessed. You have to look at it from that perspective. In a big company, it becomes much more about how I predict myself. In a small company, you use a customer to guide you on how much to actually push that bar. And most times you'll find that you ought to be taking more risks because you can get something to the customer. And so long as they understand where you are in your journey, they'll work with you in, even if there are mistakes. So for me, customers provide the perfect way to guide where to draw that balance. Thanks for the insights. Like uh, I had one analogy and one question, the analogy with which I look at my transition from a large to a medium to a smaller company is like, a cruise ship versus a yacht versus a sailboat. Like in the sailboat, we are still trying to even figure out if we can get beyond the SF Bay and, you know, enter the Pacific Ocean. But the question I had is that, you know, the finance example that you gave, right? Like you are, you are taking care of these licenses. You are like deep into that problem, figuring out how to keep the lights running. But your manager, probably the CEO, founder, whomsoever, be like, you know, we, we want you to focus on the career ladder. Like you are SVP of engineering, like, you know, come stabilize our career ladder. Whereas one of your probably platform teams would have appreciated if you had figured out how to reduce the AWS cost or the Circle CI cost. So now how do you, you know, balance out and, and either convince that the finance thing is the right thing to do or how, how do you go through this? So it's less about convincing. And this is where I say what problems you choose to pick, you need to calibrate with folks who understand the gravitas, relative gravitas of each one of these things. And I can't actually make that choice. If you, you know, gun to my head, I'd be like, yeah, I'm probably going to make sure that we don't follow over tomorrow. So if something does, if my DNS records are gone, I'm going to take care of that. If it is career ladder versus spend, that's actually the perfect question of the CEO. And 
my instinct, smaller company, I mean, even more in the climate we live in, fix that spend, then fix the career ladder. Because that, the other part of the career ladder aspect, I have this other analogy, which is terrible, by the way. I always ask myself, am I in wartime activity or peacetime activity? And generally, if I find myself in peacetime activity, I know I'm doing something I like rather than something I should be doing. That constant check in your brain is, needs to be going off. So uh, the question I ask myself, it's not just this example, is am I, um, is what I'm doing a wartime activity or a peacetime activity? And generally what I found is if I'm indulging in the peacetime activity, it's not that it's not important. I've landed up picking it, picking that because I like doing that more than the wartime activity, which I must do. There's different versions of that playing out every single day, right? And the other part, you know, I didn't mention this earlier. You pride yourself on efficient calendar management in a big company or efficient. I mean, I used to literally plot my assistant would help me where on the campus I would park in the morning and where I'd go and pick up the car in the evening. I mean, I try to plan every Friday, but that is not, the goal is not for me to be efficient. It is to be effective. So if my calendar looks nothing like what I planned, I can't feel terrible about it because I've responded to what the company wants. But biggest thing I'll say, just go and check with somebody. And I have no ego. You know, sometimes I'm like this or that. I have no ego. I'll go and actually find out. I'm doing these two things. What would you say? Pick. Awesome. That's all the time we have for today, folks. Uh, please encourage you to meet up with Ali and Vinod. Thank you all so much for sharing your experience here at DLC. And we look forward to future conversations. Let's give a warm round of applause. Thanks for having us. Don't miss out on ELC Annual, our community's flagship conference happening in San Francisco on August 30th through 31st. You'll leave ELC Annual equipped with practical, proven strategies that will transform you into a more effective leader. Visit sfelc.com forward slash annual 2023 to secure your tickets now. Join us at ELC Annual and be a part of the future of engineering leadership. We'll see you there.